If I was to ask you um, what you think the biggest problem in the culture is right now, or what you think the biggest problem in the church is right now, my hunch is many of us in the room, I would, many of us in the room would talk about hopelessness. There's a real lack of hope in the world, and for those of us who hang out in the church, there's a ton of lack of hope in the church as well, right? Uh, Hope is something that's waning quite a bit in the culture. And so the fear, the pessimism, the hopelessness that seems to characterize so much of the culture and so much of the church uh, needs to have something to address it. And what I want to do in these next three weeks is address this subject of what it means to have a hopeful faith. A hopeful faith. And today we're going to talk about a hopeful faith in God. Next Sunday we're going to talk about a hopeful faith with others. And the third Sunday we're going to talk about a hopeful faith for life. And for me, this is one message with a 166-hour intermission between the first and the second and the second and the third. Okay, so it's kind of one message. If you're only here today, go online, listen to the other two. Uh, If you're not here today, you're not hearing what I'm saying right now anyway, so I won't say that. (laughs) Hopeful faith based on the book of Ephesians. Six chapters that aren't that long, and so I would encourage you, even over these three weeks, to be reading the book of Ephesians as we look into what it means to have a hopeful faith. Every sermon series in every church has a meta-message, has a subtitle, has another thing that it's trying to get out. My subtitle for this is how to read the Bible carefully. Notice I didn't say how to study the Bible or how to sermonize the Bible, but how to read the Bible carefully. So although the title is Hopeful Faith in God with Others for Life, the subtitle is How to Read the Bible Carefully. We're going to do six things each week. We're going to start with philosophy, then we're going to go to grammar, then we're going to go to a reflective reading, then we're going to go to a word cloud, then we're going to go to a poem, and then we're going to talk about the implications. Okay, so each week we're going to do that. Philosophy, grammar, Reflective reading, a word cloud, a poem, and implications. All, he says, in less than 30 minutes. So I want to start with philosophy. Um, Some of you study philosophy in university. Some of you hear the word philosophy and you go, oh my goodness, philosophy. What is philosophy? Well, there's all kinds of definitions for philosophy, but one of them is that philosophy talks about the nature of existence. What does it mean to be here? How do we understand the world for what it is? And some of you study philosophy in university right now, and you're examining the nature of existence, the way things really are. So let me start with some abstract philosophy, first of all, and then we'll make it much more particular. This stool is objective. This stool is subjective. This stool is reality. This stool is understanding. This stool is true truth. This stool is lived experience. This stool is Bible and history. This stool is experience and feeling. Now those are all synonyms. They're basically saying the same thing in a different way. So the objective nature of life, like some things just are, but then there's the subjective side of life where we have an understanding of the way things are. There's some reality over here, and then there's 
our understanding of reality over here. Uh, there's language we could use if we think more Christianly. There's, there's true truth over here, and there's lived experience over here. Now, one of the things that philosophers have helped us with is to help us figure out what is life like? Like, what does it mean to exist on this planet? And what philosophy would say to us is there are some objective realities, and there are some realities that you could describe in a Christian way as true truth, and then there is lived experience. And of course, to live in this world, the world of the objective, the world of true truth, you have to look outside of yourself. So if I want to live with objective realities of life, what I need to do is I need to not focus internally, I need to focus externally. I need to look at things like Bible, history, at trying to understand the way God is. But over here, this is my lived experience. And so whatever this may say, I have my experience. So when I think of God, for example, I read in the Bible, I look through history, I see who God is, but then over here I have my, my lived experience of God. Now here's where the problem comes, and this is a philosophical problem for those of you who study philosophy. To what degree are these two related to one another? To what degree is objective realities, true truth, God who he is, to what degree is that related to live experience? And of course, what you see in Christian circles is people leaning one way or the other, right? There are people who, who, who maximize objective truth and minimize subjective truth, and then there's people who maximize subjective truth and minimize objective truth. So some of you have been to those kind of churches, right? So these churches, the churches that only talk about objective truth, um, let's use, let's use uh, singing as an example. They love singing hymns like this. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, enlightened, accessible, hid from our eyes. And as you're listening to that, you go, what the heck does that have to do with me? Immortal, invisible, or how about this one? Holy, 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 Lord God almighty. And you're thinking, doesn't help my navel at all. Like, I'm not feeling anything about this. This is, this is a church that only specializes in objective truth. These kind of churches, they sing different kind of songs. Jesus, I am so in love with you. Right? And you see the difference between subjective truth and objective truth. If you're in a church that's going, immortal, invisible, God only wise, and then you're in this church and going, Jesus, I am so in love with you, it's like a completely different presentation of how you see the existence of life. And of course, the problem is, when you overly emphasize this and you minimize that, you have a certain kind of problems, and when you overemphasize this and you minimize that, you have another set of problems. Now, what's the answer? It seems to me, hopeful faith learns how to take these two and put them together. That's what hopeful faith does. This kind of faith, and some of us have been in these kind of churches and have this kind of Christian experience, this kind of faith doesn't seem to penetrate my experience at all. You sit there and think, what? I don't get this. I don't, I'm, not feel, I'm, not, I'm not feeling this today. Right? But over here, you get, Jesus, I'm so in love with you. Like, I don't know. Like, and then some of us go into all these loving Jesus that way. Like, I love Bev that way, but Jesus? Like, I, 
I don't know. Like, and then I start doing my navel gazing and my analysis, and I think, I'm not feeling very hopeful about this today because I'm not feeling it, right? But you see, the problem is with either ors, either objective or subjective, either true truth or lived experience, the problem is we need to learn to put these together. And can I suggest to you that one of the problems in the culture right now and one of the problems in the church right now dare I say it, including this church, is we are still learning in the culture and in the church to put these two together in a combination that's healthy. That's part of the task. So what philosophy tells us and what philosophy teaches us in this area is it seems to me the most hope in my Christian faith, the most hope in your Christian faith is to take this and this and put them together in a way that's healthy. Many of us are too much this way, many of us are too much this way, and in the process, we haven't learned to put it together. Philosophy. Let's go to grammar. Now, for some of you, when I say philosophy, you're going, oh my goodness. And when I say grammar, you're like, ah, where's the off switch? Grammar, I haven't heard grammar for years. And it's interesting, those of us who are people of the text, right? Uh, People of the text, Jewish people, Muslim people, Christian people, we're all people of the text, we all have a book right, that we we believe in, and this text requires us to read, and in order to read, you need to understand grammar. And if we don't understand grammar well, we don't read the text well. So let's talk about grammar, and I want to start talking about pronouns. I recognize there's all kinds of discussion on pronouns in the culture right now. I'm not talking about those kind of pronouns. I'm talking about another kind of pronoun. And those of you who have no idea what I just said, you must be in a coma. Um, (laughs) Now, what is a pronoun? Well, a pronoun is simply something that takes the place of a noun. If I stood up here this morning and said, Rod says this, and then and Rod says that, and Rod says this to you, you'd go, like, like an athlete or something, you know, you're referring to yourself by your own name, that kind of thing. Um, I use I. I is a pronoun. And I is a pronoun that replaces the noun Rod. So pronouns replace nouns. They can also be singular or plural. I, one person, we, We, many people, right? Uh, Thirdly, first, second, or third person. Remember that in your grammar days in grade nine? I, you, they. So there's a a person-ness there in the first, second, and third person. But here's the point I want to focus in on. There are objective pronouns and there are subjective pronouns. What are objective pronouns? Objective pronouns are pronouns that are like us. So when I talk about us here today, that's a pronoun, but it's an objective pronoun. If I use the word we, that's a subjective pronoun that describes all of us as well. We and us are both plural, but one of them is used subjectively, one of them is used objectively. So let's look at two sentences. I'm glad Andrew's here today. He'll love this. We are buying chocolate desserts at Temper in Dundurave. Some of you know one of my spiritual gifts is chocolate. And um, uh, Temper is my second in Vancouver, uh, behind uh, Terry's downtown, but I would put Temper number two. I'm hoping to get royalties from using them as an illustration today. But the pronoun we, we are buying chocolate desserts at Temper in Dundurave, the pronoun we there is a subjective pronoun. It's we. We are buying chocolate desserts at Dundurave in, in Temper this afternoon. The second sentence, 
Andrew Chung is buying us chocolate desserts in temper in Dundurave, now we've moved to an objective pronoun. We is subjective, us is objective. Now, this is really important, and for those of you who like chocolate, there's some of you don't and you're on crazy diets where you can't have chocolate and everything, but chocolate is clearly from creation. Uh, raisins are from the fall, like, I mean, we all understand this. Um, so for those of us who like chocolate and see it as a, as a, as a food group, Think of your experience that we are going to temper this afternoon, okay? That we are going to temper. So the object is we, and what we're going to receive there is we're going to receive desserts. But guess who has to buy them? We have to. Like, we are going, we're the subject, and it means the subject is the one who's doing something, right? So we are going to be doing it. But imagine if Andrew, with his high love of God, and sensitivity to people, and massive salary from the organization that he works for. Imagine if he took all of us to temper and Dundurave. We wouldn't fit. But imagine if he took all of us, and the sentence was, Andrew Chung bought us chocolate desserts at temper and Dundurave. That would be unbelievable. He'd be doing more fundraising than he's doing now as a result of the experience. But what, and listen carefully to the grammar in this, the reason that would be an amazing experience is because when you realize you're an us, listening? When you realize you're an us, and there's a subject that is the one performing the action, you realize your only task is to receive it. Let me say that again. When you realize you're an us, when you're an object of a subject, and you realize that the noun is Andrew Chung, the noun Andrew Chung suggests that Andrew Chung is gonna be, be performing the action and all we have to do is receive it. Hear that spin on those two words? Subjects engage action, objects receive action. We don't have to do anything. We just follow Andrew. He opens up his big wallet with his massive credit limit on his visa card, and we just eat and drink, and we're going, wow, Andrew's amazing. Why is he amazing? Because he's the subject engaging in the action. We are the object receiving the action. Let me say this bluntly. If you don't understand that principle, you do not read the Bible carefully. If you do not understand that principle, you do not read the Bible carefully. And if you're listening carefully between the lines, you'll know what I'm saying. Many Christians go to temper with Andrew, and Andrew's willing to pay, but everyone's scurrying around thinking, what can I do, what can I do, what can I do, what can I do? And Andrew says, I got it. I'm the subject engaging in the action. You're the object that's receiving the action. All you need to do is say, thank you. So, summary, and if you're following carefully, you know there's a bit of a flip from philosophy to grammar. Philosophy, this is God, this is objective reality, this is me, this is my lived experience. He ultimately is objective reality, my experience flows from that. His objectivity does not flow from my lived experience. My lived experience flows from his objectivity. Who God is precedes my experience of who I am. Who God is 
precedes my lived experience of him. If I don't have both, I get myself in trouble. That's philosophy. Grammar, again, using object and subject in a different way, when I understand that the subject in a pronoun engages the action and does all the action, and I realize my responsibility is not to do anything, but actually to receive that action, all of a sudden I realize that there's something in the, in the relationship with me and God where I've got to say, understand Andrew Chung and temper. Now, here's what I want to do, reflective reading. Typically, on a Sunday morning at this church and every other church, we do sermons. Sermons are careful analysis of a passage of Scripture. It's really important to do. But in this series, we're not going to do sermon, per se. We're going to do a reading. And before I read, here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to be thinking about three things as I read. One, the emphasis in this passage on objective truth versus lived experience. In fact, if you want to think of it another way, when you read this passage, list all the things that you think you need to do. And you know what the answer is? Zero. I try to throw some French in now and again. Zero. There's nothing in this passage that says what we need to do. It's all about what God did. That's what it's about. Secondly, who performs the action in this passage? Who's the one who initiates action, continues action, engages in action? That's God. The task in this passage for God is like the task for Andrew when he takes us all to temper. That's what it's like. But thirdly, I want you to notice that people are the object who receive the action. So people in this passage, and I want you to notice here, in this passage... If you're looking for this stuff, lived experience in this passage, you won't find it. There's nothing about anyone's lived experience here. It's all about this is the way it is. This is reality. This is what God has done. He's the initiator of this. It's not about our lived experience. So I'd like you to prepare to read the Bible or to listen to the Bible being read. You will know that most people back in biblical times did not read the Bible. They heard the Bible read right? Because they were illiterate. And so I want to engage in an action each Sunday where we simply listen to the Bible being read. And for some of you, that will require great concentration and an ability to listen. Sometimes even in churches, we don't listen to the Bible when it's read very well. It may require you to reflect a little deeper than normal. For some of you, it may mean close your eyes and just listen. For some of you, it may mean keep your eyes open and you have the sheet in front of you with the passage So let me just be silent for a moment, and then I'm going to read it. So listen to this passage with this grit. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ 
to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. In Him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's just be silent over that passage for a moment. Now, many of you will know what a word cloud is. A word cloud is simply a um, collection of words that come from a text. And so I did a word cloud on the passage that I just read. The bigger words are the words that are cited most frequently. The words that are cited less frequently are smaller. Okay, so the big words mean this word was used a lot. The little words mean this word wasn't used very much at all. Let's just end do it loudly so we can all hear, what strikes you both in reading and listening to that passage and looking at this word cloud, what jumps out for you? I mean, there's obvious things, so it doesn't have to be deep and profound, but just what does jump out at you when you look at this word cloud? Say it right out loud. What's that? Christ, okay. Us, yep. Grace. Okay? Yeah. Are there any words that are small that kind of strike you as, wow, like all those words and this one's really small. It didn't seem key to the passage. What's that? Guaranteeing. Guaranteeing, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hope, yeah. Okay. Sins is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Here you get this whole thing about God, and, you know, it's almost, it's like finding Waldo here. Sins is just like between God and will and glory. Isn't that kind of cool, the way that software randomly puts sins right smack in the middle with God and God's will and God's glory? 
So, uh, so a faith that's like totally emphasizes sins misses the fact that this is ultimately about God and God's will and God's glory. What else do you see? Forgiveness, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, say more, Shelley, about that. Yeah. But that feels really important. Yeah. Yeah, this is the big, big plan, but plan is kind of cut off in the corner. It shows up on your yours there, does it, in front of you? Yeah. Yeah. What do you do, how would you put together, thinking of grammar or philosophy, how would you put together the big words in there? Somebody want to take a stab at that? That's a little scarier question. But how would you put together the big words into a sentence that captures all of this? Okay. By God's grace, Jesus saves us. Yeah. So wh- who, where's the subject, where's the object there? Who's the subject, who's the object? Christ is the subject, and what's us? The object, right? Yeah. Anyone else want to take a stab at putting the big words together? God's will is Christ's grace in us. God's will is Christ's grace in us. It's a good summary of the passage. Somebody else? Just a little louder. Okay. I want you to notice, in light of this distinction here, the distinction between objective true truth and lived experience, notice how this passage is all about this. It's all about this. Like you wouldn't, if you wanted to get a list of things to do, stuff to do on Monday, things I need to engage in, which is in this chair and is appropriate, it's not in this passage, right? Like you look at all the words there, all the verbs there, uh, it's all about what God is doing. And the grammar on the subject object, God is the subject and we are the object. And like going to temper with Andrew who's going to pay for all of us, The emphasis then is on the subject, not on the object. And notice the passage makes it very clear. It's not of works, lest any of us would boast. If we turn this into, well, you know, it's a little bit about God, and it's, you know, we got to do a bunch of stuff, then I'll compare with you. I'll think, oh, like I do better than Robbie does. Uh, Robbie does worse than I do, and we'll start comparing. But this is not about lived experience. This is about objective reality. Let's look at this famous... Uh, or well-known anyway, maybe not famous, but well-known poem from Margaret Fishback Powers on the back of your sheet. I want you to notice in this poem, and poems uh, should not have an explanation before, so I'm aware of that, but let me, given what we're using it for today, I want you to notice how the writer of this poem is very much living her Christian life as a lived experience. This is what I'm seeing, 
This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm observing. So she comes to the Christian life with the sense of, here is my lived experience. And what she learns in the poem is you cannot define the Christian life solely by your lived experience. You also have to go and see who God is. Right? Let me say that again. You cannot live your Christian life solely by your lived experience. What you need to do is recognize that sometimes God is just functioning in terms of who he is. And notice how this poem shifts from this stool to this stool in the way the poem unfolds. So let me read it. Footprints in the sand. One night I dreamed a dream. I was walking along the beach with my Lord. Across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. When the last scene of my life shot before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. There was only one set of footprints. I realized that this was at the lowest and saddest times of my life. This always bothered me, and I questioned the Lord about my dilemma. Lord, you told me when I decided to follow you, you'd walk and talk with me along the way, but I'm aware that during most of the troublesome times of my life, there's only one set of footprints. I just don't understand why. When I needed you most, you leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you, never ever during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. And you see what what God has done in this poem of saying to the person that if you completely live into your own experience with God and that's all you do, the problem is you're going to start misperceiving who I am. But when you understand who I am, you recognize even though sometimes we don't have that experience of God, a lived experience of God, sometimes we learn after the fact that we learn who God is that goes way beyond our experience. So God as subject and God as object and a passage like Ephesians 1 and 2 that lays out the way things are first before it gets to the way things need to be in terms of how we live. Now here's what I'd like to do just for a few moments. Most of you are sitting beside somebody you like, some of you aren't, uh, but most of you are. So with the person beside you, if you're comfortable, Uh, Not everyone's comfortable. If you're not comfortable, close your eyes, pretend you're praying, do whatever. Um, With the person beside you, what hits you the most of what we've talked about in the last 25 minutes? What jumps out at you the most? What what do you think, ah, I need that? Hadn't thought of that. That's important to me. Uh, One thing for you that uh, jumps out and mumble with your neighbor for a few minutes before we come to the end. Okay, let me interrupt you again. I want to suggest three things uh, that I have learned in reflecting on this myself uh, over recent weeks. So let's put the the second one up, Andrew, if you could. Next one. If we want to have a hopeful Christian faith, my experience is that we need to start with who God is. That's really important if we want to find hope. And as I was going through this and talking about objective reality and true truth, and sort of the way things are, one of the things I talked about there was a looking out to Bible and history. And it seems to me if we want to have a hopeful faith, we don't just want concepts of God, 
We actually want to know who God is as God has revealed himself in history. God has revealed himself in scripture. So that's one of the implications for me. The second one is there's something wonderful about a lived experience culture. I am not one of those baby boomers who castigates everyone who lives a lived experience culture, millennials and Gen X and others. There's lots of those around. I'm not one of them. I think a lived experience is great. And some of us, boomers and traditionals, we grew up in this culture. And in this kind of a culture where everything was objective truth, we just we pushed all of our lived experience into it. Men ran things. Women pushed their lived experience down. White people ran things. People of color pushed their experience down. That was the dark side of this. And this has dark sides to it. So for those of us who are over 50 today, let's not do a, we need to get back to this duel, that would solve all our problems. No, lived experience is important. And there's something really healthy about lived experience. But if I only live in lived experience, I'm experiencing the same problem as that chair experiences when it's lived to the extreme. Both are needed. And the lived experience culture also needs to recognize, it seems to me, that it's not as hopeful a faith if it's only based on my lived experience. As somebody who battles depression, my lived experience goes up and down unpredictably. And if my whole Christian faith is premised on my lived experience, I'm in deep doo-doo because my lived experience is not consistent. And so sometimes in the darkness of the depression, I hang on by one single dental floss thread to who God is. And I feel like it's going to break, but that's the only way I can get through it. The deeper I go into my lived experience, the worse I feel. I don't feel hopeful. And so it seems to me the risk is those of us who are older living with objective realities and true truth need to recognize the importance of lived experience. But by the same token, the, the great advantages of lived experience pushed to its extreme leads us to a faith where people talk about their view of God, but they haven't got the foggiest idea who God is. And that's a problem on both sides. And for those of you who are here today, and I don't know everyone that's here, but for those of you who are here today that you don't identify as a Christian, there's something wonderful about the Christian faith in terms of offering hope. The Christian faith in a way that's consistent with philosophy, of we need objective realities, we need subjective realities. The Christian faith that says, based on a grammatical construction, the subject of life is God, and we are the recipients. We're not better. We're not people who have positions on issues. We have received. We are receivers of what God has done. It's not stuff we have to do. And the Christian faith, it seems to me, is not sitting perfectly on this chair. The Christian faith is sitting on this chair and realizing the profound implications for this chair. Profound implications. And so if you're not a Christian or you don't identify as a Christian, let me invite you today to consider the reality of who God is, the reality of who Christ is, the forgiveness that's not a command to do, but is actually a command to receive and to receive that with a deep sense of what God has done for us. Because when we are in temper with Andrew and he spent all his money buying the chocolate, the only thing left for us to say is to receive it and say thank you. Amen. Thank you so much, Rod. Come on up, Robbie. I don't know about you guys, but I wish that Rod were my philosophy and grammar teacher in school. I'm also very happy that Andrew is taking all of us out today. 
Uh, Robbie, thank you so much for uh, picking up where Rod left off and lead us in hopeful worship. <laughs> 